0: Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it
1: pleased to have the Eisenhower National Security Series of the United States Army War College here with us tonight to talk about a spectrum of important topics. The United States Army War College represents the highest level of education offered by the military services and is designed to equip selected senior officers and civilians with the competencies required of strategic leaders of the United States Armed Forces. The Eisenhower National Security Series, by the way, my father who flew C-47s on D-Day was attached to Eisenhower's staff. Uh, The Eisenhower National Security Series is the United States Army War College's communication and outreach program designed to encourage dialogue on national security and other public policy issues. The moderator for tonight's, today, tonight's panel is Captain Stephen Kratow Captain Krato is a designated naval aviator and has commanded patrol squadron 46 during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Before posted to the faculty at the Army War College, he was the United States naval attache to the Russian Federation. He has been awarded, ready, the Defense Superior Service Medal, the Bronze Star, the Defense Distinguished Service Medal, the Airstrike Medallion, and the NACI, I don't know this one, the NACI Commendation with Valor Device. Please welcome our captain, who will then introduce the rest of our distinguished panel. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Let me just say
2: that it's really hard to follow that because his voice... <laughs> Uh, and, Peter- <laughs> 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 and I hate it when when the, the real the wars because not to take anything away from that but I will get mercilessly kidded from these guys for the rest of the night. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you very much for having the World Trade Council. Just an awesome group. Uh, we've worked with them in Pittsburgh. Uh, very excited to be here tonight. Um, and I've worked very close with Jocelyn uh, to get you know, all, the, all the details down, so the organization is just wonderful and, and very gracious to have us out here and we are very, very thrilled to be here. Um, as you heard, the Eisenhower program is an outreach program. We're, we are not recruiters, uh, we're not here to, to sing the praises of the Army War College, um, per se. I mean, it happens, but, but that's not our main goal. Our main goal is strategic communications, outreach with various communities. We go to high schools, universities, civic organizations. Uh, today we were actually at a fundraiser at first's house, and I, and I was telling some some folks that we like to 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 interact with the young folks, but every once in a while it's really nice to have an adult conversation, and see what's, <laughs> see what's on the mind of you know people, you know leaders in the community, successful businessmen, etc., things like that. So uh, I expect certainly we'll have some interesting uh, questions tonight. Um, the guys you see here are students at the War College. Um, they go through a year of intense study. Uh, they will all graduate with a master's degree in national, secure, national security systems, and uh, then they will go on to very senior positions. Some will have command, some will go to work for three stars and four stars. And when they come to the Army War College, most of them are very comfortable speaking at the operational tactical level. That's that's what they've grown up with. It's all about the fun stuff is. Uh, and one of the the primary roles that, that the War College has is to get them ready for for life as a strategic thinker. So they go through a, a whole slew of courses. Uh, some are required for everybody to take, and now uh, they're actually uh, missing, much of their delay, um, some of their, their elective courses now. Uh, and then they have research papers to do, a lot of requirements for them to get through through the year. Uh, and they come early June, they will all move on. Most of them, I think you all know where you're headed, uh, so they'll be happy to share that with you as well. Uh, again, we are very thankful to be here. What I'd like to change maybe the uh, what we're going to do tonight, instead of having everybody talk for 5 to 10 minutes, which would allow us only about 15 minutes worth of questions, I'll let everybody introduce themselves, give them a very brief uh, kind of an idea of what their area of expertise is, and then I'd rather spend the night with the questions and answers, because that's where we make most of our money, I think, and we have a great discussion. I will say this, this is a non-attribution environment. Where we disagree with policy, we'll let you know. We, we are not here to sing the party line. We're not here to say... This is the Army War College solution to everything. And so we will spout that out verbatim. That's not what we're here. We're here to give you our opinions on things. And so in that spirit, I would ask you to please feel free to ask us questions about anything, whether or not it's in, in their area of expertise or not. So, so <coughs> when we do get to Q&As, please, the more questions, the better. So, again, thank you very much. Oh,
3: okay. I'm going to use this because I don't have the same uh, voice you have. Uh, I do understand how you keep those uh, prisoners in, in line, though. That does make sense. Um, well, I'm uh, Tony Nesbitt. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted to be here tonight to have the opportunity to talk to you. I'm a, a medical service corps officer in the Army. I've been in the Army about 19 years. Um, my major experience has been I've, I've been in combat operations and that kind of thing, but I've spent a lot of time doing uh, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, security assistance, and security cooperation-type missions with the Army. Uh, Just spent uh, six months deployed to Haiti post-earthquake as a commander of a medical battalion. Uh, So I'm ready to talk about that. I spent a lot of time with Katrina and some other things. Um, So if you want to talk about disaster relief and and HADR, humanitarian assistance, or anything that has to do with uh, wounded warriors or anything like that, those are things that I've spent a lot of time with. So I'll be happy to discuss that with you. Thank you.
4: My name is Scotty Patton, and uh, it's my honor to be here. And I'm looking forward to And we had some great uh, discussion already uh, back in the lobby. I'm originally from Norman, Oklahoma, so please don't hold that against me. Uh, we really appreciate all the great football players you've sent north over the years. Uh, so uh, I appreciate that. But I've been uh, in the Army, a total of 26 years now. Uh, 22 years have been commissioned as a field artillery officer. And uh, I've been to uh, Iraq four on four different times, four diplomas to Iraq. I've been uh, to uh, Hungary and did some work with NATO uh, in uh, Germany back in the uh, early 2000s. And also I just recently came from uh, the DMZ in South Korea uh, last year and got to uh, had the pleasure of uh, assisting the South Korean Army during the Yongpyong artillery attack uh, that you got to see uh, on the news. be glad to discuss any of these issues with you, and I'm looking forward to the dialogue. Thank you.
1: That
5: was very good. It's very hard to follow. Oh, please, please. <laughs> Um, I'm Al Abramson, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, I've been in the military 22 years. Um, My basic branch is Chemical Corps, so the first half of my military career, uh, although I majored in chemistry, the Army saw fit to put me in the Chemical Corps, the two really don't have anything related to each (laughs) other, but that's how we think. and so the first half of my career, I was a Google corps officer where we worked with chemical defense equipment. And um, in 1996, I transitioned over to what we call now the Acquisition Corps. Acquisition Corps really is a formalized corps. It used to be kind of a detail where I work with re- mainly defense contractors of building new weapon systems specifically for the Army and the Joint Warfighters. So I've been doing that. So my focus... Um, that I'm prepared to talk about are weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, biological, chemical weapons, if you want to talk about that. Because I'm an acquisition officer and I've served a couple of times in the Pentagon for the Army's budget, I can talk about the defense budget if you want, or any questions that you all have. And I look forward to uh, any engaging questions that you have. Thanks. All
6: right, my name is uh, Colonel Nestor Sadler. But uh, before I get started, there was a gentleman. Uh, we're in the lobby asked me, were we recruiters? I think it was, might have been Bob Campbell. Uh, you guys are a beautiful group.
1: Uh, however, <laughs> I remember, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I don't know if
3: you're quite the thing we're looking for. But, so we're not recruiters. Okay, thanks a lot. A little bit long in the
6: tooth, like to say in the gym. But I'm a, I'm a Special Forces officer. I spent the 23 years uh, in, in the Army. On my last duty assignment, with Special Operations Command Africa in Stuttgart, Germany, uh, who has the mission of doing all special operations missions uh, and on the continent of Africa. And I like to say, and I said it earlier, had the best of both worlds. Actually, lived in Germany, but worked in Africa. So uh, you don't never want to have it in reverse. Having to live in Africa and working in Germany. But I'm here to talk anything about Africa, especially West Africa. I was the commander of the Joint Special Operations Task Force Trans Sahel, so I've been to a lot of the uh, Western African countries in the Sahel region. Uh, so any questions on Africa or anything else or special forces, uh, I'll be more than happy to answer. I look forward to the engagement and the questions. Thanks.
2: So uh, as long as you raise your hand I'll, again, I, we promise we'll be here till, till somebody tells us to, to leave. I know you you may not want you may leave before we will, but that's fine. But we'd be happy to answer as many questions as you want. So sir, I think you know, what you had your hand up first.
7: I'll start
0: with an easy question.
2: Uh-huh. Of course you know that's crap. <laughs> <laughs> We uh, are all
7: aware of the tragic events in Afghanistan. Uh, we've all been aware of the exit that we are in process of in Iraq. Uh, David Petraeus was here last year talking about his very unique counterinsurgency strategy in terms of 30,000 feet. And I guess my question for you gentlemen, and I don't know who to, uh, I'd like any of you to participate as you'd like. I guess at this point in time, a lot of us are thinking through this whole issue of nation building as a component of a counterinsurgency strategy, and we're all waiting to see whether that is ultimately going to be discredited or whether it's a strategy that, that can be sound uh, but may be poorly executed. I'd like to get your assessment of the whole concept of nation, nation building as a component of a counterinsurgency strategy as General Petraeus has articulated it, you know, positives, negatives, strengths, and weaknesses, because I think we're rapidly going to have to come to some conclusions about that as policymakers and as voters.
3: Yeah, uh, I'll go first. and It's a debate that, that we've been dealing with for quite some time. Um, there's no limit on the discussions, uh, you know, talking about nation buildings as a component of a strategy of, uh, you know, after you you go through combat operations, phase one, two, three, get to phase four, phase five, and what we call uh, phase five ops would be nation-building type missions. I, I could tell you that uh, along with everything else, it- it's a strong component. I-, I believe it's a necessary component. Um, the difficult thing with it is there are a couple things that are difficult about it. One, it costs a lot. It costs time, it costs money, but beyond that, it, it, the results can't be realized right away, and so it takes a lot of patience. Um, you know, if we if we look back at World War II, if we did not engage in nation building in Germany, or if we did not engage in nation building in Japan, we'd probably have a very different world today. But those results took 50 years. So the, the question right now is: Are we willing to invest 50 years and that kind of effort into into what we now have as you know, countries that have been decimated because of 10 years of, of war. And, and, and then there are complicated issues with insurgency and, and coin and those kind of things that we're working through. So uh, as a component, I, I agree with General Petraeus that it's absolutely a necessary component and, and we, we should look at it as part of the combat operations. We need to look at it up front to determine what the end state is going to be and, and what we intend to get out of it and we need to be truthful and upfront with the American people that you know this is not going to be a quick result we're not going to get in and get out it's going to take some time or we're going to be fighting those wars again And so that's just my perspective
1: Has the nation building in Iraq been successful?
4: I'll take that uh, <laughs> I've I spent quite a bit of time there and uh, doing counterinsurgency uh, in Iraq. And I will tell you, sir, we have a lot of strategic interests in Iraq, is my personal opinion. We can debate why we went to Iraq, and I know that there's emotional, uh, those are emotional debates on either side that you take. But I would contend that Iraq has an educated population. They have, they're used to a centralized form of government. They have an extremely adept road network. They have a lot of natural resources. They border, um, Jordan, you know, Turkey, and one uh one called iran and um, so my thinking is I think it has, and I think it has made a difference. Um, my personal belief, if I was advising the president, I would have said, stay in Iraq and leave Afghanistan for those reasons I just uh, laid out because we in my view uh, we did not have the strategic interest after uh now. Not saying that we 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 still have bad guys in Afghanistan that we probably need to capture or kill. Uh, it's just too hard to apply a counterinsurgency strategy, in my view, uh, to Afghanistan. Um, now, could we have a counterterrorism strategy there? I think we can, uh, and that counterterrorism strategy being, you know, we we target uh, those terrorist cells and uh, with kinetic operations, um, but. It, the country is very difficult. It's, it doesn't have um, it doesn't have a road network. It has a population that can't read. It's bordered by Pakistan and Iran and Russia, and, and it's, we it, we have a hard time getting supplies in there. Uh, but I think our counterinsurgency efforts, uh, frankly, worked in Iraq. And the last thing I'll say on it, um, and I like to tell this, I know the guys get tired of me talking about this. When we went to Iraq. Every al-Qaeda-loving terrorist went all in on Iraq. I mean, we were capturing them from Egypt, from Morocco, from Sudan. They all they all came in to fight the, the Americans. And frankly, uh, we kicked the hell out of them for four or five years. We really did, and we did some serious damage to al-Qaeda from them coming into Iraq. Now, was that our grand strategy to begin with? Probably not, but it was just a consequence that happened. And um, <laughs> Uh, so that's my view, and, and I hope that answered your question. Uh, how,
7: many, uh, in. In? Hmm. how many countries are
0: we in with military? How many countries are we in with military?
2: I think you'd have to, you probably want to maybe clarify that a more, because we are in a lot of countries with military. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if you're talking about how many countries are we in engaged in, in combat or. No.
1: No, just do we have a military president? You pick a minimum number.
2: I mean, uh-huh. coming from an embassy, we have we have military presence in two hundred and I think forty embassies across. Obviously, one hundred ninety some odd embassies across the world. So there's a military presence almost in every large country, just from an embassy standpoint. But you guys talk about yeah, that's probably one for you, Tony. Um,
3: well, the, the answer is a lot. <laughs> no, we 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 have uh, we have presence in 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 quite a few countries, but but presence is. Uh, is stratified by level of effort, and it depends on what those soldiers or troops are there to do. Um, we, we do have bases in a lot of countries, but we also have uh, engagement in a lot of countries where we have military-to-military engagement, which does not represent any kind of a effective combat force. So, uh, I mean, we'd have to research the exact number to see where we're involved in, but if if the question is, where is the military actually across the world? I would tell you t- probably just about every country there is. Um, but as far as a significant combat force that's actually capable of conducting military operations, that's, that's a whole different question.
0: I just want to concur with what uh, Colonel Scott said. I just returned as a uh, senior advisor at Iraqi Artillery School. And we, are, we have made significant strides in Iraq, uh, seeing from them starting from grand, ground zero to where they're at today and fielding M-198s and M-109 howitzers. So uh, I think we have done a good job. Uh, I think what you're seeing is you're, we're watching the media too much, personal expression, uh, is that when I met with the, the personal officer of the Iraqi artillery school he had on ER, and uh, <clears throat> he asked me a question. I told him my nephew lived there, and he asked a question. He goes, was your nephew scared? And I said, why? He said, well, all the gunshot victims. And I said, you do know that's a TV show, but that's where they get the reality of the U.S., and unfortunately, that's where we get our reality of Iraq. And I, they treated me. I have a different respect for Islam and Muslim uh, culture, so uh, I concur with uh, what Colonel Patton said. We have made significant strides. There is a difference. In Afghanistan, it's a 70% illiterate population. If you read General Petraeus' book, All In, he was here last month, or his author was Paula Broadwell. It's a very good read on counterinsurgency. So I fully concur with what Colonel Patton said, and he didn't pay me for that either, or <laughs> no, or drinks either.
7: I
4: got him a glass of wine. No.
7: <laughs> um, I, you know, I... Think that uh, we've learned a lot about uh, counterinsurgency and nation building, and I just like your opinion. It seems to me that a lot of the nation building stuff that we do is really a civilian uh, task. And you, as professional military men, I want I want to know how you feel about having been burdened with this. Do you do you think that that's a task for the the armed forces, or should we be putting a little bit more emphasis and a little bit more funding in? into uh, USAID and, and other programs to try to take up that, that task and allow you all to do things that military men are, are better at doing.
5: Well, you, 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 you kind of hit the nail on the head it, when the first question of nation building came up. That was exactly what I was thinking in terms of we need to remember that nation building is not a, a military-led effort. It is the Department of State USAID-led effort, or should be. Now, that being said, the military comes with a whole lot of stuff where we can oftentimes fill the gap where USAID and Department of State don't have the capability in terms of manning money. There, we, we had a Department of State professor in our seminar, and she kind of put it very frankly. When a commanding general comes to a particular nation, he's going to have his entourage with him, and more than likely he's going to get off a military aircraft, fixed-wing aircraft, relatively large, with his entourage. And, and and so picture that to come help, as opposed to a Department of State worker, which is probably getting off of the latest commercial flight that came in from D.C. or something like that. So just the visual perspective, uh, but, but it's really the Department of State person that really needs to lead that nation building. So I, I concur with you 100%. But again, because of all the capability that we bring, we, the military, brings to the table, if there is a gap, we'll fill it. But, but hasn't that come about because
7: the State Department was not, I mean, this, this isn't a traditional
0: well, well, military. Well, <laughs> before, you,
5: before, you, <laughs> yeah, before but, you respond, and so one of, the, one of the challenges is a cultural difference, meaning the Department of State is, they'll plan, and this, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a cultural difference. Department of State will plan to plan. And her analogy, I, I, I go back to the professor that we had in the seminar who worked in the Department of State in some of the African countries, was that they are very slow and methodical because when they make a decision, they are representing the President of the United States where we are pit bull terriers, meaning, oh, we see a problem, we'll jump on it, and we'll go get it right away. Well, wait a second, Department of State, they let us massage it a little bit, but the military has already acted on it and kind of ran with it. So those cultural challenges or differences also add to it and not necessarily – that department of state can't do it it's the military grabbed it and ran with the ball
3: well um yeah i, I don't disagree with what al is saying at all um there, there's definitely some cultural differences but but there there's some idiosyncrasies and some assumptions that that we have to we can't gloss over when we talk about this when, when we talk about nation building especially from a proponent of uh phase 5 ops after combat operations very different because there, there are different components that goes with that. There's a security assistance piece that, that has, to, has to be part of it because stability operations has to accompany that. The State Department does not have capacity for that. Um, when it comes to a post-conflict region, um, they, they, a lot of, well, the State Department, USAID, and USAID is a, is a different organization. They're more of a HADR uh, type organization. They, they do disaster relief humanitarian assistance missions. They don't do nation building. With, with a nation building, if you think in context of uh, again, going back to World War II, post-war Germany okay, um, yeah, the military's been doing nation building for a long time. The Marshall Plan was all about nation building. Uh, in Japan, MacArthur was, was pretty much the premier of Japan for several years after the war and because after you come out of a conflict you have a security issue that accompanies stabilization that allows you to build infrastructure and and build rebuild a nation and and in the absence of the things that we typically destroy in conflict what do we destroy we destroy country's military capability we destroy the police capability we destroy the communications we we destroy infrastructure that that assist them with governing their own spaces so if, you, if you're going to do that post-conflict nation building is absolutely going to fall in the military because there's not a lot of other people that can do that provide security, provide stability and allow a nation to come back to where they need to be now that compared to humanitarian assistance and disaster relief and normal theater security cooperation things that we do very different but from a, from a, a nation-building aspect, Phase 5 Ops in Iraq and Afghanistan, me personally, I would tell you that we're about to have a, a test case on that in Iraq. And I would tell you that uh, we're, we're about to find out just how much the State Department can do nation-building in Iraq now that the Army is leaving. And, and I, I, you know, if you ask me about the outlook, I'm not that optimistic.
7: Is it Colonel Scott? Colonel Patton. Call me Scotty, though. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> Korea, um, how many uh, – what kind of military forces do we still have in South Korea? Uh, why? Mm-hmm. And I believe I heard that a number of years ago we pulled a lot of our f- uh, forces that were up on the DMZ back mm-hmm. somewhere into the southern portion of, mm-hmm. of uh, uh, South Korea. And uh, do we think that the Chinese would actually let the wackos in North Korea overrun (laughs) South Korea without taking some serious action to uh, stop that? That's a a thoughtful question. Uh, To answer the first part,
4: we have uh, one Army Division (coughs) minus, and basically I say minus because we have the 2nd Infantry Division headquarters. At Camp Rag Cloud, which is uh, at uh, Weejeanbu, South Korea. It's a little bit north of Seoul, about 10 miles from the DMZ. Then you have a uh, U.S. Army Infantry Brigade, a heavy brigade combat team uh, that is also at Camp Casey, pretty close to the DMZ, but not actually manning it. Uh, but it's garrisoned there, and it can be there pretty quickly. We also have, this very significant on the peninsula, is a uh, U.S. Army MLRS Brigade. Uh, basically, a, a rocket brigade uh, for field artillery for the U.S. Army, and then you have um, an aviation brigade. But I think it's very important for the American people to understand that the South Korean army is pretty darn good, and they have um, approximately seven army corps, which is about five hundred thousand soldiers, and they they can uh, they could hold their own. And as far as offensive operations from the North Koreans. Um, in my view, uh, they cannot attack very long into South Korea. In fact, I don't even think they would get to Seoul in a sustained offensive operation because their their tanks, their art, their, all their armored equipment is very old. It hasn't been well maintained, um, and they don't have a lot of fuel to do that. But here's where the, here's where the problem is. They have 14,625 artillery pieces aimed at Seoul. That's a problem because just one of them working just for two or three rounds, okay? And if, if you haven't been to Seoul lately, it's like Manhattan on steroids. It's, it's a wonderful city. It's beautiful. I mean, uh, uh, they have embraced capitalism like you would not believe, and, 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 <laughs> and free market economies, and uh, it's, just, it's a profound city. And it's got a population of about 12 million and i would also say that that's significant to us because there's, we get about 25% of our exports from that part of the world so from from that uh perspective that's that's why um it's important and the last thing i'll say the the whole narrative with the, with the nuclear thing you're you're seeing this 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 game play also in iran and it and it's the the narrative on north korea is very important because it's it's giving uh, other countries historical precedents like Israel. And, you know, they're seeing kind of the things, how North Korea kind of developed a nuclear weapon over time. Most open sources will tell you they have eight now. And um, so you're going to you're seeing that narrative play out. And it's going to be very critical here in the next few years um, how we deal with uh, the young Mr. Un. And uh, it's going to be a challenge because he's – only twenty seven years old and the biggest thing I worry about is really not on war in Korea, but at the regime collapsing and having all that WMD and and I don't think China doesn't want war to answer the last part of your the question. Uh, they don't. Um they they I think they get just as mad at, at uh at the Kim family as we do sometimes. So <laughs> hope that answers your question, sir.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Hillary Clinton has said that she's going to resign. How would a change in administration or a change in the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense, and how do you think they've done?
4: She said she's just yeah, – oh, wow, Western. I didn't see that on the news before. I...
0: Oh, I think she's indicated that she's tired. and. That no, I, I've
2: heard the same thing, that regardless yeah. of the outcome of the election, she will, she's not going to stay on for a second term. Uh, I'll,
4: I'll take that on. I mean, I – um, General Dempsey came and spoke to us and I've, I've known him, uh, I've worked for him on several different assignments and a uh, very thoughtful guy and, and, and he spoke honestly about uh, uh, and he's you know, very impressed with her um, and I'll tell you she's, um, I, I think she's done a good job frankly uh, and, um, and I thought Gates was an incredible secretary of defense uh, I will just tell you he was fantastic in my view and uh, I don't know Mr. Panetta that well yet, and it's hard to, um, so I really can't comment on that. And I think uh, General Dempsey's going to be a great chairman. And so on that apparatus, that's that's kind of where I stand.
3: He's been trying to. Uh, question for several of
1: you. Um, you mentioned Israel. This is a multifaceted question. When do you think the Israeli Air Force will strike? <laughs> what are you expect? <laughs> what do you think? What do you expect that the Israelis want from the United States to support in addition to the ability to go over air, airspace in Iraq? And then the last question is the most important question is what would the repercussions be if they're successful from other countries attacking Israel and beyond? So it's a multifaceted question oh. to several of you.
3: Mr. You got the first part. Oh, okay. Come on, Nestor. i I've been talking time. to <laughs> you. I think the first part of the question
5: is easiest meaning we hope that they do not attack. Okay. So they, uh, hopefully Israel continues to show restraint because I think the secondary and tertiary effects of them becoming involved, if you will, will kind of start uh, spark a forest fire, if you will. So hopefully restraint will, will prevail um, with Israel. That's the first part of that. So go with the assumption
1: that Netanyahu, what he's saying is, will happen and say they do strike with a year. Go with that assumption
5: then. Say that again. Go with the assumption
1: that Netanyahu will strike.
5: No, 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 no. No, 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 no. no, no. Go with the assumption that it is probably all posturing okay. and saber-crossing and that they continue to show full restraint. Okay. That's my hope. That's what I believe. Um, I think we were able... If, if, if history shows any indication, I think during the first Gulf War, Israel showed great restraint. So, if we can continue with that and, sh- and, and position ourselves, the United States ourselves, that we will protect you, we are a very strong ally, and that, that strength will not, that bond will not go away, it will not break, I think we will be okay. So, hopefully, that restraint continues. That's just my
2: thought. Sir, in the back of the microphone, uh, while we're
7: on the uh, topic of uh, Iran, they've, they've been doing a lot of separate rattling about the uh, Gulf of our Horm- Hormuz. Yeah. Well, I know this is not a, this would be a naval adventure, but isn't the Fifth Fleet a station in Qatar? Why do we, why does this become so important? I know, of course, we would have to show restraint, but uh, what are the repercussions? ramifications of all that is this same thing that we're talking about or is this because of the uh, I know there's an economic blockade against Iran I don't know if a blockade is the word but um, is that is the is this all part and parcel of the same thing we have that. a naval expert we do, uh, actually we do, uh, up here. <laughs> we uh, give him nobody
2: that. can <laughs> understand why why there's a Navy guy in charge of the Army <laughs> War College Eisenhower program, but there is, so I'll take that. Um, I actually got asked that earlier day, almost an identical question, uh, about what would happen if Iran closed the Straits of Hormuz and how would that impact not only our response but but affect the region. Um, and not trying to sound too biased that you know, the U.S. Navy can handle everything. But I do think that, you know, Iran's very cable, uh, it has it has Moderately well-trained forces and, and equipment that could definitely make, um, or definitely close the straits for a, a, a restricted period of time. You would all, we would all feel the immediate effects of that at the gas pump, uh, and, and certainly that would be a very painful lesson for the American people to have to put up with. But um, in the absence of, I think, what would there would be a hard press on diplomatic negotiations if they failed. Uh, the military ramifications for Iran would be catastrophic because within, I say roughly, and I've heard this in open sources, about 72 hours is, is what we say they could probably control the straits, not let anything travel through there, until things happen within their country and other areas where they had to, would have to divert attention. I mean, certainly the, their forces around the straits would be uh, pretty well eliminated, but there would be other other things going on. Deeper inside their territory, that would, I think, change their focus of, uh, of Memphis. Um, the big thing with Iran right now is, is sanctions. And I do think, you know, one of the things that we, we tend to, as Americans, gloss over is the, the length of time that it takes sanctions to work. We want those to, uh, to happen very quickly. Uh, and I, I don't personally think that we have seen the, the effect of sanctions just yet. I think I just read something the other day where we have cut off <coughs> – the, uh, the Iranian ability to access monetary funding. And mm-hmm. and in the absence of that, I mean, when you can't have any funding basically to to, to improve infrastructures, to make investments on, on projects, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what the ramifications of that will be, but I know that they will be severe. So I think, I think within the next, certainly within the next month, you will see Iran I don't want to say backed into a corner, but they're going to become in a position where they either have to Fish are cut bait, as we say, and I think they're either going to have to come to the negotiating table in a very realistic and honest way, or they're going to try and rattle their sabers to a degree that we have not seen yet. I hope that uh, answers your question. This lady had it, sir. The this grade. lady had a uh, Oh, I'm she sorry. Let me do this. All, me. Right, all right. <laughs> I was trying to help you out. I was trying to help you out. All right. Ladies first. Ladies please. <laughs>
1: Well, um,
4: we you know, there's a great discussion on this. Uh, you probably saw it played out uh, <laughs> with uh, General Dempsey the other day calling a, uh, uh, Iran a, a rational actor. Iran's strategic purpose is simply this, regime survival, period. Okay? And I kind of uh, look at it as the rat in the corner. If you back a rat in the corner, it, so if we don't back them in the corner, they're you know, I don't think they'll probably use it because they know that that's the end of the regime. But if they if, if they're backed in the corner and that's it, that's where I would think they would they would use it. And I'm sorry. I'll no, no, no.
5: You're, you're right on. A quick follow-on question.
0: All right. How do you feel uh, in the political atmosphere here, where you have a lot of uh, prospective presidential candidates suggesting that we should go bomb run and that that's the way to do it? I mean, how does one deal with that? Excuse me.
5: Please. That that's a very. That, <laughs> I'm not in, I'm not into politics, so that that's different. <laughs> I, I, I want to answer your address your first question, and then I'll try to come around. Um, I don't think Iran, if they were able to get nuclear capable weapons, that they would use it as well. I think once a sovereign country gets a nuclear capable weapon you have to treat them differently whether or not you respect them <coughs> prior to that capability you now have to respect them and so as Scotty has already kind of alluded to they want it and they will once they get it they will hold it as a chip if you will to go to bargaining to a bargaining table if and when necessary and say I have this capability and I don't think that they would technical term willy-nilly, use it. I think they will just have it and now I am part of the club and now you have to respect me because I am now part of the club. So I think in terms of the political rhetoric where you hear for us to go and bomb them, I think that's very dangerous. Um, however, if, if the political leaders decide that they want to take away that capability from Iran, Prior to getting it, because they don't want Iran to be part of the club, then they do need to go in early and take them out. Now, I don't make that decision. I'm not a political leader, um, but I think hopefully they don't do that.
2: Uh, somebody over here. I think there was a question, sir in the Great There's been a lot of discussion recently
7: about special forces having uh, totally new, uh, different control get that term, but much, much different control of special forces operations. I wondered what your thoughts were. Well, first of all, how is that conversation progressing, and then what are your thoughts
6: uh, about this? Go ahead, Just so I can make sure I answer the question correctly, talking about just the command and control of special you know, I mean, forces. I think
7: mean, what was proposed, the head of special forces operation. came out, and obviously he said this publicly so he must have discussed it privately first that he thought that the special forces operation should have a much more independent role and, uh, role, and obviously it's going to be controlled by the president but uh, not under the usual uh, uh, guideline on construction. Could, could you distinguish between special operations and special forces? Okay.
6: Like? Sure and I'll, and I'll answer your question then I'll go ahead and answer your question. Special operations Forces are all the forces of all the different services uh, that make up the Special Operations Forces which is the command and control of the command headquarters United States Special Operations Command in Tampa, Florida. So the Navy SEALs, uh, Army Special Forces, uh, Marines now have a Special Forces unit, Uh, Air Force have their Special Tactic Units. And I think that's those Delta, that's all part of classified men's team six. CIA is not part of the DOD part of it. So that's the Special Operations Forces. And your second part of that question, specifically to the special forces, and I think my boss was the guy that said that, wasn't it? So I concur so I concur with him. I think that's a great I think that's a great idea. I think that's a great idea. But what he's looking what he's looking at is for the special forces in particular, is having it or separating it from underneath the army, and having it like a service-like to entity, and and with that, and I think it's good games, gamesmanship. It comes with a lot of resources, comes with requirements, have your own funding, uh, so on and so forth. So, and I said this earlier, special forces is in a growth industry. Uh, timing is right, we, you know reputation is on par. So if you want to make a move such as that, have your own service-like capability, then this is the time to do it.
2: There's a question I think in Yes, sir. I know you had your hand up.
7: Could you tell us the the truth about Pakistan? (laughs) what What I'm talking about there is what kind of relationship do we really have, military to military, with Pakistan? Uh, killing of the 24 border uh, guards destroy that, or is that something we can overcome? And it, it, are they our friends or not our friends?
6: Since this is a non-attribution, it's kind of funny to use the oxymoron. The truth about Pakistan. Well, there's no truth in <laughs> Pakistan at all. So uh, that's, that's first and foremost. But quite frankly, unfortunately, or unfortunately, whichever way, way you want to look at it, it's one of those necessary evils. I mean, we need the Pakistanis to step up and assist our efforts in Afghanistan. Uh, they're not the best, you know, but we're not the best of friends. They're not the best partners. However, it's a requirement. We, we need them as much as they need us. Uh, so it's one of those relationships that, and I have a cousin like that. I don't really like him, but since we're family, we kind of have to get along together. We act like we like each other during during Christmas. But I can't wait till he leaves, and I'm sure he can't wait till I leave. I think that's kind of like the same type of relationship that we have with the Pakistanis. Did
7: the 24 uh, border guards that were killed—is that was that just a very, very significant factor that degraded our uh, working relationship, or or is it something that's being overcome?
6: I think it's being overcome. I mean, it was it's already a very contentious relationship anyways. I don't think the, t- the 24 didn't add uh, or didn't make it, I don't think, any worse. It didn't make it any better. Uh, but, again, it wasn't like we were just best of friends. Because if we were, they would have understood that, hey, look, it was an accident. It wasn't. Fight. But they're using that as a political statement. They're using it to kind of, you know, put it in the media, you know, make the U.S. look, so I don't think it's going to – I don't think it deterred it anymore. And, and quite frankly, as long as we – this is saddler, it's not non-attribution. As long as we continue to pay what we're paying, as long as we continue to provide the aid, monies, and everything else, I think they'll be okay with it. I think the bigger question is what happens when we leave? How are they going to – what are they going to say and what are they going to do then? You know, so we're kind of paying for their silence and paying for their friendship – what happens after
2: after that? Sir Noy?
1: If Iran becomes a member of the nuclear club, will that likely lead to Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, others wanting to
7: join the club? And you think all of them together, given the historic conflicts mm. there, would be rational?
4: That's a great question. And we discussed this the other day, and I, I know the guys are, Sick of me telling my personal opinion about this this crisis, and it gets to the heart of what you're saying. Uh, I think we have three options in Iran. One is we use nuclear, or we use. uh, I'm sorry, we use uh, military force to to delay their. Yeah, that would be an option. I'm glad this is non-attribution. No, Um, we use precision strike capabilities to delay their nuclear program. That's not going to be an overnight bombing campaign like you saw. In other countries that it's going to take some time uh and it, so it's not going to be a two or three day operation the second option and now if we did that i will tell you sir you mentioned saudi arabia they're probably going to be not openly supportive but uh behind closed door they're going to be saying shukran New zealand thank you um and 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 so will probably turkey and so will probably the united arab emirates because they're sunni muslims and they're terrified that a, a Shia Muslim Iran will have a nuclear weapon. So it gets to the heart of your issue, and, yes, uh, that could start a nuclear race, and I think that's probably uh, being thought at the highest levels of our government, that very, that very reason right there. The second option if, is if Israel takes military action. They don't have some of the capabilities we do. Plus, the Sunni Arab countries aren't going to be as, let's just say, as kind to Israel uh, if they take military action so I that's why I'm with Al I don't I don't think that's an option if, if, if military action is going to happen I think it's going to have to be the US and the third option and is Iran has nukes and you know when I asked when we asked this question on the road I I you know we were in Arkansas the other day and we asked the same question uh, to uh, some of the Dean and their faculty there at Arkansas State and I just asked a show of hands who would be okay with Iran having a nuke and not one person would raise their hand. And so, you know, if you're in Israel right now, um, you feel differently about it. If you were, if, if Oklahoma had the nukes pointed at Dallas, uh, we would feel differently here. And uh, that's kind of where I'm coming from.
2: Sir,
7: I uh, nobody has more respect for you, gentlemen, and your service than I do. But I am very <coughs> disturbed by what I hear tonight as a lot of wishful thinking. Uh, These comments that Iran is a rational actor, that surely they would never use a nuclear weapon if they had one. Um, I think think one of the critical mistakes we often make in foreign policy and defense policy is we underestimate or or misunderstand our enemy and our (laughs) adversary. I know you guys are good at contingency planning. I know you've talked through what if they have a bomb, what if there's a terrorist nuclear event, those kinds of things. Uh, (laughs) It it concerns me greatly when one of our military says, well, we hope they won't go nuclear. Uh, I think this gentleman asked some very, very good questions a little while ago, and he didn't get very, very focused answers, and I think he deserves good answers because the, the question for all of us is not what we hope will happen. It's not that we hope they will be rational. It is what if they are not. And you've got a guardian council running the country in Iran who are the theocrats. Very few of them have ever been outside of the country. They do not know the outside world. Um, they are rational in that they want to retain power. Right now there's a fight between them and Ahmadinejad and the Revolutionary Guard Corps. But um, I, think, I think we've got to do what the Israelis do. They, you know, they are in this process of deciding uh, what if they're not rational and can we live with that? And it doesn't seem like we're asking those kinds of questions. And it's not that I'll go ahead and take that one. It seems like a Please hard, a hard, jump hard, jump hard
6: question. I'm ready to I'm jump on it. No, they, they, okay. they keep to the, make sure I get all the hard questions. That's, <laughs> a, that's, a, that's a different, actually it's a great question. And, and first and foremost, as, as military, we're always planning for contingencies. So we have contingency plans for the what-if. However, one of the things that I think we've all learned and we all, you know, truly respect and a part of is we are a civil military nation. But more importantly, and why we say we hope, not because it's wishful thinking and we're just kind of a different army or, or anything else like that, because quite frankly, I like to break things. I really do. I like to break things and tear things up.
7: (laughs) But
6: one of the things that I realize and understand as a senior military officer, that comes with a cost, and that cost is lives. So whenever we make a decision to go break something because we think something may happen, you always got to remember who actually has to to cash that check. It's not Sadler, because Sadler's a colonel. You know, it's a young private from Dallas. It's a young female from Oklahoma. So whenever we make a decision to go to war, by God, we better make sure that we exhaust all other options because it's not about just going and bombing. Everyone, everyone talks about, oh, we can do precision strikes and it'll all be over with. You know what? That's not the case. And until you get boots on the ground and, you have, and you're willing to shed blood, then that's when you make that decision. But we, by God, we better exhaust every other means before we make that decision. So it's not wishful
2: thinking. <laughs> okay, I don't want to get on that Let's <laughs> get
7: yeah. um, so back. <laughs> <with> <laughs> the <gentleman> back there. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've talked a lot about what I'd call the the popular hot spots. I'd just be curious: is is there something that you guys lay awake at night worrying about that might not be something that's on our radar screen? These guys
2: will say it's their research projects. <laughs> 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 we
3: I, we can put that on your radar screen, though. <laughs> 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 Um, no, I, I think, um, you know, I'm just speaking for me. I'm sure everybody can speak for themselves. But I think we, we are all dealing with and we're all aware of what hot spots are today as far as U.S. interests and what concerns us. Um, in the end, you know, our engagement around the world has to do with our interests and our values and how we do things and what we engage in. Uh, and we've been talking about them tonight. You know, basically Iran... Uh, North Korea, China, uh, even though you know we, we, we see those things a little differently and how we engage in them but i don 't think there are too many secrets out there, not in this day and age. I mean we know what the dangers are We, we know that transnational terrorism, uh, international crime uh, and, and one of the things we 're not talking about is our own domestic economy uh, because that that affects everything we do. And the effectiveness of uh, our military and our ability to to carry out the missions and do our business, which goes right back to your your question um and I think Nestor did a great job of addressing that, but you know we 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 understand what those issues are out there, and we understand how they affect us, and we understand um what we need to worry about and there there are a lot of problems out there, but there there's some big ones looming and and I think we've discussed them but for me. It would be, what I wouldn't worry about more than anything else is our domestic economy, because I Real think quick, that affects us.
2: Two sentence answers. Anybody
3: else
6: No, that's you? exactly right. I was going <laughs> to tell you, I mean, our, our hot spot right now, in my opinion, is right here at home. The
4: that's deficit. The
6: economy. And if we don't get that right, then our military might and everything else. And what makes us strong as a nation is our, economy, is our economic prowess. And without that, the military won't be the military it is, and so on and so forth. So, but, yeah, that's spot on.
0: Sir, How uh, Colonel Sally, you mentioned, first, thank you for your service. You mentioned boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of you, um, thank you for your service. You mentioned boots on the ground, so you're, you said you're an AFRICOM specialist. So when you look at the landscape in Africa as your forte, um, where do you classify the areas we have counterinsurgency and counterterrorism when you look at the state actors across the continent? And with you said, you being based, living in Europe versus living in Africa, and you look at General Petraeus and finding the counterinsurgency, seeing boots on the ground. How do you deal with that in an administration that's shrinking the army and then placing forces where they need to be? Because you can't hold land with drones. You have to have boots on the ground. I mean, if you look at Petraeus's insurgent or uh, his strategy, Anaconda, whatever – where we had to have forces on the ground, it was very successful. How do you deal with that in Africa, such a large continent, and you being based in, in Stuttgart?
6: We do. That's, that's a great question. But the biggest difference in, Afri- excuse me, in Africa and Afghanistan is Afghanistan is a, is a war zone, where Africa has 54 sovereign countries. So as much as we would like to have boots on the ground there, I mean, it's just not the right thing to do. If we're preaching debor- <laughs> democracy and sovereignty... Well, each and every we have to respect that in those countries. What we do in Africa is working with the Africans and building partner capacity. So we train, train the Africans, work with the Africans, so that they can then in turn take care of their own security security problems. And it's not so working by with and through the Africans is our mantra, and that's how we do it because we can't have boots on the ground there. (coughs)
7: <coughs> Can I follow up real quick. Why is after aftercom
3: guard Stuttgart somewhere in Africa? In my my concern
7: is that the Africans are willing to step up and say, "Yes, we want the
6: Americans there." Mm-hmm. Well, but they don't. They actually. Why, be- <coughs> then why are we there if they're not willing to stand up and say, "You know, these are our friends"? I mean, they're they're willing to say it's just like I. I don't want to use any. I keep using all these analogies and everything else, and. People start laughing at it, but I'm kind of—I'm serious, actually. And in this case, is, I love my neighbor, but I don't want him to move into my house. You know, we can be neighbors, we can be friends, but don't come in and open my refrigerator and, and sleep in my bed or anything else <laughs> like that because this is my house, and I'm paying the bills here. It's kind of the same thing. They don't, you know, they're still sovereign. They're coming out of not, less than 50 years, in some cases, out of colonialism, so they're very sensitive to the whole occupation piece of it. So we have to also respect that. Uh... And a lot of times what we think or we perceive things to be a problem for them is we've been living that way for, you know, 150 years. Uh, we've always had bad guys. We've always had ungoverned spaces. Uh, so if it doesn't threaten, and this is a particular al-Qaeda group, AQIM, if it doesn't threaten our capital and our cities, then it's really not our problem. They're not against us. They're against you guys. So that's kind of the difference. One is it's sovereignty; we have to respect that. And two, they don't perceive the same problems as we perceive them as terrorists. And then three, you know, they only came out of colonialism not too long ago, so they're very sensitive to the whole occupation in U.S. and anyone else for that matter occupying their their their
7: country. Sure.
1: So, yeah. We have time for one last question.
7: Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go right here. Sure. you to give chairman's prerogative. Uh, th- thank you very much, and thank you all for being here and sharing with us tonight your uh, your wisdom. I- I'll ask one last question that really is 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 not pointed to what we've talked about tonight, but more about what you've been through in the last year. You all have been career soldiers and and and, and career uh, Navy airmen, and and what what is it you've come from y- your your service and your your strategic commands? What have you learned in the War College and the strategy that you've talked about that you think has been most valuable so that as you then enter back into, into the service that you will uh, that you will carry with you as the most important lesson? Uh,
3: I guess we'll answer that one. Um, thank you very much for, for that. Uh, I think um, for me personally part of it is uh, just came up with the conversation we just had. Um, coming from a a tactical background where we, tactical dealing with things at a lower level, you know, on grassroots, on the ground, soldiers, command, operations. You kind of get focused on that, that aspect of things. And, uh, but what one thing I've learned through the War College in, in the last seven, eight months being there is understanding that everything we do fits into a grand scheme of, of strategy or, or a, a bigger picture and And whether or not you like it, you know a lot of decisions that are made have long lasting effects and and so now you know you kind of learn to look beyond just tomorrow and and so you you think about ramifications, you think about what does the end look like you you think about you know what 's the next thing and what 's the next phase when we didn't always do that and and like I think Nestor just said it. You know, the decisions you make at this level will affect a lot of people. So you can't be too quick to too quick too emotional to, to make those kinds of decisions that you probably would have made that would affect maybe two or three hundred people. Now you need to worry about, you know, two or three hundred thousand people. So uh, that's one of the things uh, that they've kinda of pounded into us that I've I'm definitely taking away from the work out.
4: I would say uh, that, you know, on everything he said but you know for me personally I, I'm a tactical warfighter I love doing that I love playing football at the tactical level and that's basic blocking and tactical uh, uh, tackling but what I've learned at the war college is on the strategic level a couple of things that are profound and uh, studying all the great strategic leaders I know you like to talk about General Petraeus and we could talk about General Eisenhower and even uh, General Washington there's something profound about all of them, and they had incredible interpersonal skills, and they were incredibly humble, and they had the ability to read fast, write clearly, and speak with authority, and and they did that at the strategic level. And, you know, personalities are a game changer in, at the strategic level. We see it uh, with our political leaders. We see it with our military leaders uh, and their ability to communicate and uh, have a little bit of humility. Um, so and the strategic patience thing I think is probably the thing that I have to, you know, as a as leader have to be cognizant about because I like to just let's let's go, it's time. Uh but uh it's good to step back and, and look at the, the big uh, strategic problem.
5: Uh the thing about going Third is you know all the good answers. <laughs> so to learn to strategically think on your feet, you know I can't wait to hear what Mister has to say. <laughs> um, but but really, um, I am reminded of day one. We had we saw a video of uh, General Powell, and he talked about his ascension through the ranks. And if you envision a triangle, everything and and so he was he ultimately got to the top of the triangle, and all of us here kind of have ascended in our own uh, uh, specialty areas, if you will, and kind of are in the upward tiers of that triangle. And so because we've been in the military uh, for so many years, 19 through 26 years, everything that is kind of below us that we've worked in, we've got. We've got it down cold, have lived it. But to continue on with continued service within the military, as a strategic leader, you have to have the tools necessary to operate outside that triangle. Because the decisions, as it's already been talked about, have more political ramifications, have more strategic ramifications, and affect more lives than what we used to do so from my perspective what I've taken away is just a reminder that the War College has given us tools here's your toolbox given us tools to operate at a strategic level and operate outside that triangle that you're very comfortable in and that's that's from my perspective.
6: I'm
5: done.
6: Wow. <laughs> you know I was like uh, Mark Twain once said you know I didn't know what my father didn't know when I was 18 because I knew it all and how much and how, how much he really learned and understood by the time I was 21 so for, the, so for the War College I knew it all wasn't a whole lot to, look to learn but quite frankly what I did find out what it did teach me is I didn't know anything and we're all part of something much larger than ourselves even in the military uh, so the critical thinking piece of what all of these guys talked about is just it when you think you have the answer to the problem you better understand what the, all the other effects and impacts of that decision is going to have across the board, not only through the military, but to our economy, to our partner nations, uh, to the balance of power, and everything else. So there's no true easy problem because if it was easy, there wouldn't be any problems. So our leaders, strategic leaders, both military and political leaders, it's a tough job. Uh, so what I what I've learned to do, to do there is pray for all our leaders, for the for the for the uh, for their decision-making capabilities on everything that they do, because it's a tough and difficult position to be in.
1: In closing, I want to make a statement. I believe General Eisenhower would have been proud to have the five of you on a staff D-Day, and I appreciate you all being true American heroes. So thank you very much for For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.